Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, November the 14th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As we record this on Wednesday morning, we are in the midst of a fast unfolding narrative as Theresa May prepares to bring a draft agreement on the withdrawal of the UK from the European Union to a cabinet meeting due this afternoon. At this time of recording, it is still unclear how her ministers will react to these proposals, which have really been seen by very few people so far. In a little while, um, we'll be hearing from Fianna Fáil's Brexit spokesperson, Lisa Chambers, who's here with us in studio along with our political editor, Pat Leahy. But first, our London editor, Dennis Staunton, is on the line. Dennis, paint a picture for us of what's happening in Westminster this morning. Well, Theresa May has a busy day ahead because at 12 o'clock she goes to the House of Commons to take Prime Minister's questions, as usual. And uh, it's not clear what she's going to to be able to say at Prime Minister's questions if anybody asks her about the Brexit deal, because nobody has given any real details about what's in this draft withdrawal agreement. But anyway, after that, uh, she's going back to Downing Street. She will chair a meeting of Cabinet starting at two o'clock. It's expected to run for up to three hours. And uh, what she's going to do is to uh, see if the cabinet is ready to uh, back her on going ahead with this withdrawal agreement. Now, she had uh, a number of ministers into Downing Street last night and this morning for one-on-one briefings uh, about the contents of this document. And so far, at least none of them, uh, none of the Brexiteers in the cabinet who everybody's watching have at least said that they are resigning. So as of now, Everybody, uh, you know, nobody has told us, uh, at least in public, that they're not backing the plan. It, it, which doesn't mean, though, that a lot of people haven't come out with very strong opinions about a plan which they haven't seen, including senior members of the DUP and members of the Tory party's uh, European Research Group, which is the, the advanced core of the Brexiteer wing of the party. Exactly. And, uh, and so there are a couple of things that can happen this afternoon at the Cabinet meeting. One is that they... Uh, decide, yes, we're going along with this and uh, go ahead with this deal. Uh, Maybe one or two uh, ministers say they can't and they resign. Another would be that you would have uh, a kind of a mass walkout uh, of Brexiteer ministers or that the cabinet actually rejects the deal. But a third option might be that people say, look, we think you've done very well and our negotiators have done very well in getting the deal as far as it has gone. But actually, look at the arithmetic in Parliament. It's not going to be able to get through. It's facing opposition from Brexiteers and from pro-Europeans in the Conservative Party, from the DUP and from the opposition parties. And so, uh, you know, we're really thinking of you, Prime Minister, not ourselves. We wouldn't want to see you going off and making a fool of yourself. And so maybe we should just kind of put this, uh, you know, put a halt to this, at which point she could say, uh, well, uh, you know, I'll go back to Brussels and say, right, we're not going to have a, a special summit at the end of November. But, uh, you know, we've made a lot of progress and now we need to kind of keep going to try to get a better deal. I still think that's the less likely of the options and that certainly the music coming out of Downing Street seems to be that they really do feel as if this is probably the best deal they can get. 
and that uh, you know now is the moment to go for it. And they want to have a summit at the end of November so that they'll have time to push this through Parliament before Christmas. Pat, before we switched on the microphones here, you were saying to me that you thought this was a very bold move by Theresa May. I think it's possibly the most audacious political manoeuvre I've ever seen in my life. Um, she has, she's, I think, trying to bounce her cabinet into this, then bounce her party into it, and then bounce the commons uh, into it. At the same time, the deal that she has got involving the member the, the UK, UK-wide customs arrangement is something that the EU didn't really want to give her some months ago and something that the uh, French and other member states uh, have some difficulties with. So at the same time, all this domestic bouncing is going on. I think there's an element of which she is seeking then, presumably with the cooperation of the Commission, to bounce the rest of the Council, uh, the, the, the European Council, into it at that uh, at that summit, so it it's it's it seems to me it's not just one high wire operation; it's a number of high wire operations going on at uh, at the one time. And to mix metaphors, dreadfully, she could drop any one of those balls while juggling on the high wire at uh, at any time. I'm interested in what Dan says that she could possibly. Uh, if she faces defeat in her cabinet, could go back to uh, go back to Brussels and say, "Let's start again." I'm sceptical about that because certainly the sense that uh, I got in in Brussels at the last summit was that patience there with the British was uh, was running out, and even this week you see the Commission upping uh, its level of preparedness and advising member states to up their level of preparedness for a no-deal uh, for a no-deal Brexit. And I'm not sure she could in any event take the uh, take the defeat that failure to get this through her cabinet would represent and, uh, and, and, and keep going. I think that she's played her hand, she either stands or falls. Lisa, I mean, you've expressed some concern in recent days about what the final wording might be as it pertains to the to the Irish backstop. Um, presumably, we're going to see this wording at some point over the next 24 hours or so. Um, should we be concerned, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, we'd, hope, Irish perspective? we'd, we'd hope to see the wording uh, pretty soon. Uh, clearly, some people have seen it. Nobody outside of, I assume, the Thonista and the Taoiseach have seen the wording. And outside of that... We expect the cabinet to be briefed this morning on that. So I think the wording is going to be extremely important. If we look back to um, last December when we had the birth of the now famous backstop, which flowed from Protocol 49 of that joint statement. And, you know, it only took a short three months for wildly different interpretations of that quite concise paragraph to surface because the wording was not watertight. So the text itself will be hugely important because not only does it have to withstand the potential different interpretations from London, from Dublin, from Brussels, it has to withstand a change in personnel, you know, that will happen over the next number of years. So in five, in 10, in 20 years time, that wording has to mean the same then that it means today. And I'm sure there are lots of very experienced lawyers and diplomats and and civil servants working on this. But... We, I hope we have learned our lessons from last December because the backstop as we knew it then was massively oversold. And we're not getting, if, if the reports that we were hearing from Tony Connolly yesterday um, turn out to be correct in, in what this new withdrawal treaty and this new backstop look like, 
what we're getting now is not what we were promised last December. And of course, Dennis, this has been a, a, a huge sticking point in London as well, hasn't it? This question of the legal advice, the official legal advice to the government on what this wording really means and how that should be made available to all the members of the House of Commons. Yes, it has. Now, I understand that yesterday, at least what I heard yesterday, was that before Theresa May was going to consult the whole cabinet, she yesterday afternoon was consulting the Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox, and also Dominic Raab, the Brexit Secretary. But Geoffrey Cox's role is crucial because he is the person who the other Brexit tiers in the cabinet are depending on to give them some cover in terms of the legal advice. Now, the kind of legal advice he gave the last time that they discussed this was really about a balance of risks. And so he said that, you know, you could seek a unilateral mechanism to withdraw from the backstop, but that, you know, probably the European Union wouldn't wear it. And so you are risking a no deal Brexit. Uh, that the other option would mean that there was a risk that you'd be stuck in the backstop longer than you'd want to, but nonetheless, that it might be the better uh, better option. It appears that he has come down on the side of going for this uh, version of the backstop, which appears to have some kind of mutual consent mechanism, which would mean that the UK couldn't be trapped uh, you know, in this backstop arrangement forever. Uh, but you know, the House of Commons demanded yesterday that the, uh, that the legal advice should be published. And uh, it remains to be seen exactly how much of the advice is published. Obviously, knowing that it's going to be published, Geoffrey Cox presumably can tailor it for publication. And uh, so we'll see how, how that fares. I'm not sure that in the end, once this uh, document is published, if it goes ahead, that the legal advice will really be the crucial thing. I think that really uh, people are going to come down on this, really in terms of whether uh, this deal, as Theresa May will say, is a, the best deal that's available, that it does actually fulfill the desire of the electorate to leave the European Union, but at the same time, it protects the British economy, protects the United Kingdom, keeps the border open and keeps trade frictionless. And that the alternative to that is a catastrophic no-deal Brexit on the one hand, or a move by the House of Commons to block Brexit altogether and perhaps have a second referendum. So I think that's the campaign that you're going to get over the next few weeks. And then I think the other thing is, if you look ahead to where this goes in Parliament, let us assume for the moment that it does get out of Cabinet and she pushes it through, there will be a huge amount of pressure. Business groups are being briefed in Downing Street today about the deal. They're expected to come out very much in favour of it and lots of warnings about what might happen if you don't have a deal. One option I think that could happen would be that you uh, get this deal to a vote in the House of Commons and it is rejected. And then if I cast my mind back to 10 years ago when we were all even younger than we are today and I was in Washington and watching the TARP bill, which was the bailout of the financial services industry in America, and that went to the House of Representatives at the end of September and they voted against it. The following day, the markets went insane and the Dow dropped by something like almost 800 points uh, you know, right away. And the, uh, the, the Congress came back the following week and voted it through. And I think that there, there are some people in Downing Street around Mrs. May who think that this may take two goes. And so that what happens is that you've got a fairly big rebellion the first time, but that maybe uh, after uh, you know, the whites of their eyes are, uh, come into view, that's, that actually they, uh, they come around the second time to vote in favour of. But could she survive, Dennis? Could she survive its defeat in Commons on the first occasion? And what would be the bridge to get her? And if so, 
what would be the bridge to get her from that first vote to the second vote? I think the thing is that, uh, yeah, I, I think that what's difficult for, you know, in a way, on the face of it, she can't survive a defeat in the House of Commons on the most important piece of legislation, you know, for decades uh, and, the, and the, the centrepiece of her government. Uh, I think, by the way, that uh, I would disagree with you about uh, her surviving a cabinet deciding to uh, not to go with this deal. I think she can survive that. And she kind of, you know, she tends to want to survive and she looks at whatever is in front of her and what's in front of her today is the cabinet and she'll do whatever is necessary to survive today. I think the problem with uh, getting rid of her uh, is that, uh, you know, they have to then have a conservative leadership election. It's quite clumsy. What she would do if she decided to resign would be she would have to go to the Queen and, uh, the, you know, and she would probably uh, be asked, uh, you know, uh, to stay on while they're uh, finding a new leader, which would mean that even if she resigned, she'd still be in place for, um, you know, for a second vote. I think that probably what would happen would be just that, uh, you know, the way it would be precipitated would be very much in the way that it was in the US. Now, obviously, the US system is different because it goes from the House to the Senate and then back from the Senate to the House. But I do think that if you did have some enormous market reaction, which I think, frankly, you would have if uh, you were suddenly facing into the prospect of a no-deal Brexit with very little preparation for it, uh, then I think that that could uh, you know, create the circumstances where you could come back. Now, it mightn't be, uh, you know, immediately the the week after. It could be after Christmas. But, you know, there still is time, uh, you know, after Christmas to, you know, for various things to happen. And obviously, if there, you know, if what I describe doesn't happen, then what you are into is uh, facing the prospect of a no-deal Brexit, unless Parliament finds a way of asserting itself and either uh, demanding that the government goes back seeks a renegotiation, seeks an extension of Article 50 and the negotiating period, or seeks to legislate for a second referendum, which is a highly complicated thing. And of course, the third option would be to go for a general election. Oh, it's going to be a hell of a roller coaster ride one way or the other. Dennis, I know you have a lot on your plate today, so we're going to let you go. Thanks very much indeed for joining us from London. Now, Pat and Lisa are still with us. Just stick with us after this. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic... Or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good. Because there's something you'll always be able to control. Your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution. Giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. Lisa, if I could come back to you on that, that... Dennis's view, really, that this review process, which I think we understand there's going to be some form of review process appended to the back of the backstop so that um, Theresa May can tell people that there is an exit mechanism of some sort. Is that, from an Irish point of view, going to be the the, the key point, what that new mechanism is? I think it'll be be one of the key points. And, you know, when this was first mooted last week, the question that I was asking was, you know, what exactly are we reviewing? Because at that point, we were still talking about two backstops. The UK wanted their own one. We wanted a Northern Ireland specific backstop. How will the mechanism work? Um, Who will arbitrate over it? Um, You know, this idea that it could be unilaterally, that the UK could unilaterally exit from the backstop. And the point Dennis was making about the AG's advice, and that was on foot of a Labour motion, actually, that was uncontested and, and passed by the Commons. If the AG, it, I think it's very unlikely that the AG is going to publish legal advice that will say, actually, this this backstop ties us in indefinitely. Mm-hmm. 
I think the AG, if it publishes it, its advice, will publish advice that is in line with what the Prime Minister is saying, in that, of course, it's temporary. And of course, we can exit in the fullness of time. You know, if we decide as a parliament that we want to leave, we can leave. That puts us in a very tricky situation because if the AG's advice directly contradicts what the Irish government are trying to tell our citizens and what Michel Barnier and his team are trying to tell the EU27, that there will have to be some sort of process in place and that the UK cannot just cut off um, you know, from the European Union and precipitate the erection of some sort of border infrastructure down the line. So that legal advice could become a key factor in, in how this all plays out here for us domestically. But presumably the Irish government will have its own legal advice on it. And I understand Seamus Wolfe, the Attorney General, was in Brussels last week. So I expect yeah. there will be an Irish take on that. And I think what you will see over the, over the coming week is you will see the British saying this deal means one thing Mm -hmm. and perhaps the EU saying, maybe not so loudly, but... Well, they're in, saying that this believe that this is another yeah. thing, but I'm intrigued when, when lies the said problem. That what we're getting, and, and and I agree, we're all speaking in sort of a vacuum in that we haven't seen the text of the deal, mm. and but when we do see the text of the deal, which I understand will be later today, okay. the review mechanism from an Irish point of view, the review mechanism and how the uh, how a potential exit of the UK from the uh, from the the, the 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 customs the UK wide customs uh, area how that interacts with the north and uh, well indeed and mm-hmm. with, because there are, we know that there are northern specific elements within this deal which is what which has got the 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 DUP's backup but that will be a crucial point of view I'm intrigued to hear Lisa say that what we are getting it appears what we're getting is not what we were promised back in December. And I think I we think can say that with, a, with a, a fair degree of certainty, actually. And, you know, if Geoffrey Cox is to publish his, his legal advice and that we can all see it, uh, our own government are saying that there will be a European Union block legal advice coming forward. As you would expect. As you would expect. But without a doubt, Seamus Wolfe, our own Attorney General, will be advising government on the legal position for our state. But will that advice be published? And I think we will, our own government will come under pressure if, you know, the, the Attorney General in the UK publishes advice to say, well, this is actually temporary and we can exit it whenever we feel like it. Um, our own Attorney General will come under pressure, as will our government, to try and counteract that. And it's, how this I, plays yeah, out domestically will be very important. I think it's, un- it's unlikely, though, that the British will be saying we can get out of it whenever we want, because there will be a review making there and there may be independent facilitators whatever within, uh, as, uh, as part of that but from our point of view if a, a process if, if, if we are bound into a process that involves an independent element to it of arbitration or whatever and it is not open to Ireland to say no we're not accepting this that is to say we don't have a veto on it then that is certainly not what we were uh, Well, we don't actually have a veto anyways, because only 20 of the 27 member states representing 65% of the population is required to pass the treaty. So although the European Union, the bloc and Michel Barnier has always said the Irish position is the EU's position, that's more of an an agreement rather than a binding requirement. But the future relationship treaty will require everybody to ratify. It will, but the withdrawal treaty and that our demand for the Northern Ireland specific backstop 
we don't have a veto on I that. know that some of our listeners' eyes will be glazing over slightly. Pat, you were very helpful, helpfully provided a kind of a, a an idiot's guide to the backstop, which, speaking as an idiot, I found very helpful um, um, this morning. The idiot um, community are an important part of our target market. Probably a majority, actually. But um, the... the to reduce it down to what, in my own simple way, I understand as being the key point here, given that all these negotiations ultimately are searching for a kind of acceptable fudge somewhere in the in in the centre, can the fudge hold here in terms of the way I'm looking at it? If the review process can be read as either on the one hand unacceptable in the UK because it it doesn't provide any visible exit mechanism which the U- which the UK can enact in its own right, or from the other perspective, the Irish and the EU perspective, that it allows the UK to uh, to carry out such an action. Where is the fudge between those there, two? There's, finally, there, there, there's there's two elements to it. One is the fudge. The other is the, ca- the ca- kicking the can down the road. So if the if the question of how the UK exits and how that interacts with the North and what exactly the Republic's uh, say over that is, if that can be sufficiently put kicked down the road, then there's a prospect of the fudge holding. But you've got to say, without you know, getting into the chemical composition of fudge, it would have to be an extraordinarily pliable confection mm-hmm. for it to hold between the, uh, to hold for Mrs. May. But this is the gamble. I mean, this is the position the UK has put itself into. It, in, in a way, the the commitments of last December and the, and, and, and the commitments made by the British since uh, it voted for, or since they voted for exit in the first place, to maintain an open border in Ireland, but to have their own independent trade policy and and uh, and I mean, so forth. To you know, to a degree, they're incompatible anyway. So completely. we're we're back to that. Uh, you know, we're back to that kind of fundamental contradiction in the British policy. Now, what this deal purports to do is to get over you know, the current need for the treaty and to get down, you know, to get two years. This puts us two years down the line. If this is accepted, then Brexit moves on and the next pinch point is two years, uh, well, two I mean, years down the line. But UK has effectively been speaking harder. out of both sides of its mouth the whole way along because it's not possible if they want to diverge on regulation or they want to pursue a different customs policy. You can't do that and not have checks on either the Irish Sea or on this island. It's not possible. And that's why there hasn't been a solution to date. So the fudge, as you're saying, Pat... It's not that they haven't found a solution. It's that they're... There isn't fundamentally one. incompatible. Yeah. They're fundamentally incompatible sure. and it will be a matter of kicking it down the road. But from our perspective, um, the point I was making earlier is that this has to stand the test of time. And from our own government's perspective, we cannot allow a situation where that in 10 or 15 years time, we are back dealing with a serious issue on this island where we could potentially be looking at regulatory divergence or a change in customs regulations on this island. And that's why, as exhausting as the whole process must have been to date, we're not anywhere close to the end of it. And saving face now, um, but leaving a major problem for the next government or the one after that. that well, you know, and do you think that's what the government is lining up to do? I think the government are in a difficult position. But, you know, if we have a situation where there's effectively no change for the next two years or the next five years, and there's a change in personnel, um, we have to look at the detail of the agreement today and ensure that in the next government or the one after that it's still as binding and still as it, as it still still fit for. And isn't that exactly the same point as the DUP are making? That's why they won't accept assurances from Theresa May because Theresa May may be gone in six months' time. Well, that and I think the DUP were never going to be satisfied. 
So, Do you think that, that our columnist, our occasional columnist, Newton Emerson, was saying yesterday that the DUP was asking whether the DUP would be intelligent enough to claim this as a win? That looks unlikely, doesn't it? Well, looking at Arlene Foster's statement yesterday, um, she's pretty much saying that she's very unhappy about this and she wants to see the text, but it looks as though they're dividing the union and that no unionist prime minister could ever support it. So she's already putting the knife in and... I, I can't see the DUP coming back from that. Her statement yesterday would have been her opportunity to try and say this isn't too bad. And, you know, even if you look at some of the UK papers this morning, um, the Daily Express, quite hardline in terms of being a pro-Brexit paper, uh, front page of the headlines today saying that it was the best deal for Britain. So, you know, I think that was an interesting... I, I saw some people making, some British commentators making the point this morning that Mrs. May's, uh, you know, the famous statement that no deal was better than a bad deal. She now has to go and explain to people why actually a bad deal is better than... Uh, than Which was always deal. true. She, the, the, the initial statement yes. was incorrect and now, now she has the correct statement, doesn't she? Yes. Well, it depends on your audience. And then I suppose then beyond that, if, let's say for the sake of argument that Theresa May gets this through the the tortuous process which Pat described earlier, the multi-stage process. Would this be a great victory for the Irish government, one of the greatest diplomatic victories in the history of the Irish state? I think it's a little bit early to say that just yet. But, um, you know, as I said, I don't think we're even close to finalising this. Uh, The parliamentary arithmetic in the Commons, it's, it's going to be difficult for her to get it through her cabinet, first and foremost, but to get it through the Commons. And I don't actually buy the line that... She somehow has, you know, her cabinet being called in one by one last night and being threatened to say, you know, we either take this deal or it's a crash out Brexit. Um, they're all very well aware. And this is why it's different to what Dennis was saying earlier about what happened in Congress in the States 10 years ago. There is another option in that there is still the possibility to extend Article 50. There is the possibility of fresh elections of a new government. So we're not actually at the cliff edge yet. And the MPs, those that are pro-Remain and pro-Brexit, um, they may say, look, this deal is just too bad. It's, it's, not pro, it's not Remain enough or it's not Brexit enough. And try and push it to a point where there so is fresh elections. I take it from that that you think everybody needs to get a bit closer to the cliff edge before we really get a resolution here? I think for some members of, of the British Parliament, yes. Um, but you, you look at, say, Boris Johnson's commentary yesterday that Dublin will have a greater say in, in Northern Ireland than, than London will have. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg saying the same, that it's, a, in effect, a vassal state and that they're breaking up the union. It's quite strong language and pressure is being put on now for any member of parliament that supports the union, that they couldn't possibly support this deal. So it's far from over. And, you know, I, I think the, the, the fact that they're all very aware that Article 50 can be extended. And it was, you know, maybe six weeks or so ago um, that, you know, mes- the message was put out that if the extension was sought, it would be granted in all likelihood. So they're aware of this. So whilst the deadline is there, it's, it's kind of not there. It can be extended. Well, what do you think of that, Pat? Well, to, to be honest, I think we're at, I disagree, we're at, Zero hour now. This Mrs. May, I think, stands or falls on for this. her. It's zero possibly, hour. Possibly the whole, uh, possibly the whole enterprise um, stands and falls. Now, I do agree with Lisa, though, that this, even if we get over this, or if the British government gets over this, it is not over. So, very clearly, the future relationship treaty, which would be even more complex and complicated to negotiate than the withdrawal agreement, which was incorporated a limited number of mm-hmm. uh, a limited number of, of of topics, several of which were easily enough uh, agreed. The uh, the future relationship treaty, I suspect, will take at least several years to uh, to negotiate. So this. 
Brexit, in a way, you know, is the issue that will not die. We will be talking about this in five But we will also find ourselves... Time. The other thing, though, in the short term... In the absence of disaster, we will also find ourselves more or less having frictionless travel and trade between Ireland and the UK for for quite a few years to come. Oh, indeed, if this if 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 this if this yeah. compromise is accepted absolutely. And actually what I was going to say is that in the short term that the settling of this question would be transformational uh in ter- in political terms domestically because what it will mean is that okay, if this is done the withdrawal agreement is signed. Nothing at all will change for two years. The transition period will be there until 2021, and nothing will uh, and nothing will change. And which means that those negotiations currently perfect, ongoing perfect segue, uh, uh, that Lisa will know that was exactly about what I was going to ask Lisa about supply agreement. You are p- would the the landscape upon which. Uh, uh, the guys are considering the future of the government would be completely And indeed, Lisa, you are part of that Fianna Fáil team that is in discussions. What's going up on in that room up in Kildare Street? What are you talking about? Yeah, I, mean, I, just, I suppose first to say that we do have an understanding with, with Fine Gael that the, the, the negotiations are confidential and we wouldn't seek to try and undermine those in any way. So, um, you know, statements have been issued since the, the talks began, kind of joint statements, uh, agreed statements. Um, so this week and last week, really, we've been still... Um, getting to getting under the bonnet effectively uh, on some of the key issues. So we started off with health and we had uh, fairly in-depth uh, discussions with the department and senior officials as to what's going on in health. And this week, uh, just yesterday, we had briefings on housing. So we're still very much in the middle of the review uh, of, of the last two and a half years and looking at, you know, what are the issues, particularly in the key areas of health and housing, uh, and obviously uh, we will be looking at broadband as well. We're still um, very much awaiting the review, actually, of, of that process. So those would be the three main. Uh, those are obviously the three main domestic issues facing facing the government at the moment, aren't they? Well, it's not an ex- not an exhaustive list, but there are there there are other areas we'll be looking at. But clearly, I mean, health and housing were the are, are the big ones. Lisa is obviously constrained in terms of what she can say. What do you know about what's going on in their part? Well, not much more than uh, than Lisa tells us, uh, in in fairness. But what I, I, I can say, I think, is that uh, I think the approach to these talks on behalf of the government will be transformed if there is an agreement on Brexit. So Fianna Fáil was has been very keen to concentrate on the review aspects of the uh, of the process. So they've been talking about how the programme for government has worked and how the arrangement has worked over the last number of years with reference to the particular subjects that uh, that Lisa was talking about there. Is that also because they're not in a hurry? The, 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 the dynamic very much so. seems to have been yeah, that. Very much so. Whereas Fine Gael wanted, you know, sign the dotted line, they wanted uh, a renewal for uh, for. for two years, which was never, I think, likely. Uh, partly that's because uh, I think Fine Gael, uh, you know, is a lot keener for an election than Fianna Fáil is. And I think that if this is agreed, if the Brexit uh, agreement sticks, then I think the prospects of an election in the first half of next year are turbocharged. That's not to prejudge the outcome of the talks between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. But I am pretty sure that it will have a very dramatic bearing on how Fine Gael is approaching those talks. But if a 
crisis or sort of crisis mode extends beyond Christmas into January and February, which, as we as we've already discussed, is Can't have an one of the options. There's, I think it's it's all hands on deck. And, and, and Michal Martin has said that during this period. Yeah, I mean, you the know, offer is on the table. It, he's not going to bring down the government and therefore the government will stay in office. Yeah, I mean, the offer was, was made by my party leader, Micheál Martin, to the Taoiseach that neither party should precipitate an election um, whilst the most sensitive elements of the Brexit negotiations are ongoing, which is right now. Um, that was rejected by the Taoiseach. I don't really understand the reason why, but it was. Um, but certainly we don't think it's in the interest of the country to have an election whilst the Brexit negotiations are in the final stages. Um, but, you know, from our perspective, we don't understand the panic to, to try and rush this along. Um, the agreement that was entered into uh, almost three years ago, so it's amazing to think we've come this far with it, um, in black and white. And, and the Taoiseach at the time when he was in cabinet was a member of that negotiating team. So he signed up to this agreement and he helped to negotiate it. And in black and white, it says that there will be a review at the end of 2018 after budget number three. So we are simply honouring and sticking to that agreement as we have done the entire way through. And I think, you know, in fairness to our credit, um, when we entered into this agreement, the view was, I think, of, of most people, uh, citizens and, and those involved in politics, is that it wouldn't last six months. Uh, but it has lasted. And we have not availed of every opportunity to try and pull the government down, as was suggested uh, by many on a number of occasions. We honoured the agreement. We did what we said we would do. And we are continuing in that vein. That is, that, is, that is true. And at the time the agreement was put together, I wasn't amongst those people who said it wouldn't last because I believed it to be in the interests of the three parties to the construction of the government, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the independents, as they judged it themselves. Other people within the parties had different ideas about it, but the leadership of Fianna Fáil believed it was in their interests to... Uh, uh, to, to keep that agreement going. And that's the reason that it has lasted. But I think those conditions are altering now. And I'm not sure that, uh, I, I'm, Lisa can speak for Fianna Fáil's view of the matter, but my view of the government's perception, of Fianna Gael's perception rather, of its own interests is that they may ne- not necessarily support a continuation of the agreement if and when the Brexit business is uh, is settled at least for an interim period. So that'll be the big difference. Yeah, I, mean, I think, I think that the Taoiseach had sought to... Um move ahead at a quicker pace than was originally agreed to. So we had that letter during the summer, I think it was in July, which was clearly in contradiction of the the written agreement that he had signed up to, in that we hadn't reached budget number three, but yet he was seeking to start negotiations in the review, which just wasn't, that, that wasn't the agreement. Um, and certainly there has been a rush or a panic on the part of government to try and push this along at a much faster pace than, as Pat has said, to get us to sign on the dotted line without even doing the review, which, again, wasn't a reasonable request. And I think from our perspective, you know, we're doing what we said we would do. Nothing more, nothing less. And I think that we are honouring the agreement. I think that's important in terms of giving confidence to people that when we say something, we mean it. But well, the agreement is now coming the, to an end. The agreement will come to an end at the end of the year. new agreement or not, I think, depends on the landscape on which negotiators sure. meet. Well, that landscape is currently that. uncertain. Well, one last question, um, Lisa, and it kind of pertains, I suppose, to uh, All-Ireland Solutions and Frictionless Borders. What the hell was Eamon O'Keefe and Mark Daly at and uh, jumping the gun on Fianna Fáil's extension into Northern Ireland? Yeah, I mean, it was both both Eamon and, and Mark are colleagues of mine, so I don't want to, to jump into their minds and speak for them. So I can't answer that question as to what their own views on this are. 
but certainly it was not done with the consent of the parliamentary party or the leadership. And that is why, unfortunately, both um, both of my colleagues have been removed, Eamon from the front bench and Mark from his position as deputy leader in the Shannon because of that. You haven't asked them what they were, what, what their motives were? What no, they were and, I, and I have no intention of asking them. Really? Um, I Wouldn't think that, that be worth finding out? As a, as a party, we, we act as a collective. Um, well, we have, a, some we have, <laughs> we have. Well, that's how certainly how I operate, and we have a parliamentary party to have these discussions, and we have a party leader. And you know what happened happened, and we've moved on from it. And the decisions uh, as a party, whether we will run candidates in the north, that decision is has not been taken yet. What's your uh, own it's view? Still, it's still under consideration. I think you know it is party policy to run candidates. We will do that. Um, but being very honest about it, and we have been honest to date, you know, the setback that we had in 2011 altered that timeline for us because we were recovering from that. Um, so we have to take into account, obviously, the landscape here in the, in the Republic and the party here. And obviously, when we do make that move into the north, it has to be done at the right time and done properly. And, you know, we're still in those discussions. So we will do it when it's right for the party to do so. Um, and it will be a decision taken by the party leader in consultation with his parliamentary party. It seems a very slow timeline, Pat. Yes. This has been in the mix for a very long time now. I think it occasionally pops up as a subject being imminent, whether in the form of an amalgamation with the STLP or some other form. I mean, as Lisa says, there hasn't been there has been a general decision to organise in the north, but there hasn't been an active decision to run candidates in an election in a specific election yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, my understanding is that there is no great enthusiasm to do that at the moment. Uh, um, on the part of the party leadership, not just because he has other fish to fry uh, down here, but because of, given the somewhat febrile nature of politics in the north at the moment, and you can't divorce that from Brexit, that it might not be the best thing for uh, for the north to have Fianna Fáil move in, take over the STLP, if that's ultimately... Uh, what happens and run candidates on, uh, on, on, on in elections on a party. And does what happened last week reflect a division within the party on that subject? Well, it clearly represents a division between the Eamon O'Keeve, Mark Daly wing, which, you know, would have, I think, some support uh, in, in the party grassroots. Ordeshes since forever have been passing resolutions about the fourth Greenfield in one shape or another, but I don't think it's on the uh, to-do list of the party leader at the moment. Well, it is party policy and it is something that we will do. Uh, I don't think there's a name in O'Keeve and Mark Daly wing, uh, as you've put it. Um, <coughs> leg, possibly. Leg, well, you know... We are a broad church and we do have, you know, differing views as to what the timeline should be. But we are we are organised in the North. We do have party membership in the North. We have an OGRA um, organisation in, in Queen's. We have national executive members that are in the North that are sit on our national executive. So it's not that we're not involved in Northern Ireland politics. Yes, we haven't made a decision as to when to run candidates and in what election. Um, but I think You're only involved in politics when you run candidates. But you know? at the same time, I mean, you say it's a long time, but we've only had one election since 2011. So it's in, 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 in political terms, it hasn't been That's a long several time. several elections in the North, though. Yes, but I think, you know, it's, you can't take the North out of the context of the overall party organisation and, 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 on our, and, where we, and, our, and our operations here in the Republic as well. And, you know, I think it's a fair point to make and it's a very honest point to make to say that we had a very difficult election in 2011 and we had to recover from that. And that was the focus. And that's why the timeline has shifted. And I think that it's an understandable and unreasonable position to be in. What about but, Pat's point about the, the, the high tension which does exist in, in Northern Irish politics at the moment because of Brexit that makes it a bad moment for that reason too? 
Um, t- to be honest, I hadn't thought about that. But I think that the politics in the North has, I think, taken a few steps backwards. Brexit has certainly become polarised. And when you look at the polling that's been done, if you look at, say, Great Britain as opposed to, to Northern Ireland, the move back towards Remain, the polls are showing that, yeah, I think, a 2% move back towards Remain in the North as, as opposed to an 8% move back towards Remain in, in Great Britain. And I think that's probably because Brexit has now become unionist versus nationalist and it has become very polarising. And having been up the North only a number of weeks ago to meet with the different parties, um, you know, they really impressed upon me that it's become quite toxic and it's the first time in a very long time that many of them are now considering that constitutional question. Uh, because of Brexit, it really brought it to the forefront. And, you know, the, the concern in the North around the potential return to violence because of what Brexit is, is bringing to the surface, that's very real. Um, and I don't think that that concern is really appreciated um, in London. We shall leave it there, Lisa Pat. Thanks very much for joining us today. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Uh, you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com. You can always find me on Twitter and your views are always welcome. We'll be back pretty soon. Thanks for listening. See you soon.